as I'm, uh, you know, during the Lord's meal, I, Carrie Ann and I are looking around, we're making eye contact with the people that we just spent time with in Israel, and I was reminded of why we tried so hard to get back here just for this morning. One of the reasons that we rerouted everything to get from JFK to Cleveland to Dallas to Abilene and then drove the last two and a half hours was because I knew Gary Glasscock and Dale Redmond were getting here before I was and they said they'd preach if I didn't show up. <laughs> so you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, I had people asking me before we left, you know, you're taking a, a pretty eclectic group of people from Golf Course Road. How are they going to behave? What's that going to be like, you know, being in a foreign country with these 15 people? And I'm here to tell you, they behaved in Israel exactly the way they behave here at church, exactly <laughs> like this in Israel. Uh, I, I do want to show you a few pictures this morning. I had an Old Testament professor from Austin Graduate School of Theology who told me, if you show any Israel pictures to your church, you've got to lead off with camels because the church wants to see camels. And so we saw some camels while we were in Israel. We saw this really majestic, beautiful camel outside in the parking lot. Uh, at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And I could show you several of these. I've also got a picture of a butchered camel hanging outside a butcher shop in Hebra. And I'm not going to show that to you because I'm going to eat here in about an hour and a half, uh, maybe, maybe an hour. Um, and so it's a lot more fun to show pictures like this. Here's Dale and Penny riding a camel. This is classic Dale and Penny right here. And Deanne, I mean, we just, we, we all got to ride a camel. You don't go to Israel without riding camels. Who's next? We've got several of these. Stan the man. It looks like we were riding them outside a used parking uh, car, you know, lot. We weren't. We weren't. But that, that was in the background there. Kelly did an outstanding job. Look at Joe just uh, killing it on top of that camel. Kara. Now, we made it look easy. We made riding camels look easy. What's hard about riding a camel is when the ride is over, getting off of the camel. That is much more difficult, <laughs> getting off the camel. But... Um, we just, we had a blast. And again, it is so, so good to be back here in Midland with you at Golf Course Road. I'm going to show you some pictures today. I want to go, go to the Sea of Galilee, which right now is at the highest level it's been in over 30 years. And we, we had an event uh, while we were staying on the Sea of Galilee, a generational event that, that um, I, I want to talk about soon, not today. But uh, we just, we had a fabulous time on the Sea of Galilee. And if you'll go north from the Sea of Galilee and go uh, 28, 30 miles, you'll come to about as far north as you can go in Israel to the city of Dan. These are the ancient ruins of the city of Dan. This is Dan, the city that King Ahab built. And this is the main gate complex outside the city of Dan. And if you'll go inside the city of Dan, you'll see uh, the high place that uh, King Jeroboam built. Remember, he put the two golden calves right there on top uh, at the city of Dan, which didn't go well for him or for the children uh, of Israel. And if you'll turn east from Dan and go just a couple of more miles, again, this is about as north in Israel as you can go and still be in uh, the land of Israel, you'll come to this massive cave at the foot of Mount Hermon. And to get the full impact of what we're going to look at together this morning, you've got to understand religion as it was believed and practiced in the ancient world. Most everybody served and worshipped 
fertility gods. Old Testament and New Testament, from before 3000 BC to beyond 300 AD, most peoples and cultures served and worshiped what we call fertility gods. What that means is they believed that the male and the female gods would come up periodically from the underworld and they would come up to the earth and then they would partner up sexually. And when they united this way, that would bring the rain. And you need the rain. You need the rain for, for your crops, and you need the rain for your grains and your fruits and your vegetables. And, and rain brings baby lambs and baby goats and baby humans. It brings prosperity, and it brings success. And when the rainy season would end, that means the gods have gone back to the underworld, and, and now we have the dry season. And, and people in the ancient Near East, they spent all of their time worshiping these fertility gods, trying to keep the fertility gods happy. Because if we worship them correctly, if we make them happy, if we arouse the fertility gods, then they will come back up from the underworld and they will have sex and then we can have rains and crops and babies and fertility and success and prosperity. That's fertility religions. Anytime you hear about fertility gods, that's, that's what they're talking about. Now, some more of the context here is that the Greek word for this underworld where the gods and, and, uh, and the goddesses lived, the Greek word is Hades. The Hebrew word is Sheol. That's where the gods live, but that's also where dead people go. When you die, you go down to Sheol with your fathers. When you die, you go to Hades, right? That's the Greek word for the underworld. And it's a dark, dreary, watery place where the gods live. And it's under the earth. And, and this is where dead people go. It's, it's the land of the spirits, right? And so whenever people would see a bunch of water coming up from the earth, if they saw water bubbling up or even rushing out of the ground, they would say, oh, that's the door to the underworld. That's where the, the dead people come and go between the underworld and the earth. That's where the gods and goddesses enter and exit the underworld. This is where the spirits come and go. These are the gates of Sheol. And that's where this cave comes in. The Canaanites worshipped their fertility gods, Baal and Asherah. You've heard of them. They worshipped Baal and Asherah here at this cave for 1,500, maybe even 2,000 years before Christ, maybe even earlier than that. And it's the same deal. Baal and Asherah come up from Sheol and they unite sexually to bring rain and fertility and then they go back to the underworld. And so what makes this cave so special? Why were they worshipped in this location? Because the headwaters of the Jordan River back then came right up out of the ground and ran out of this cave. In 1879, there was a huge earthquake that collapsed the back of this cave and it diverted the flow of the water just a little bit to the west. And so instead of coming out of this cave, now the Jordan River comes out here. Again, just a little bit west of this cave. And we saw this uh, late last week. We were actually here. If you'll run some video of this, again, the water is really rushing right now out of the Jordan River, and it's really flooded the Sea of Galilee. And a lot of people believe the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, all the water there was a lot more then than it is right now. But if you can imagine the power of the Jordan River, the headwaters of this Jordan River, if you can imagine that they're coming out of this cave. 
Maybe they put that on a loop and I didn't know. Okay, this cave right here. Imagine that Jordan River flowing out of and through this cave. Imagine how impressive that must have looked. And for thousands of years, right up until just about 143 years ago, the river flowed out of this cave. The gates of Sheol. They worshipped Baal and Asherah here for centuries. And then in 330 BC, Alexander the Great came to this spot. And he established one of those cities that he was going to change the world with, remember? And right here in front of this cave, he turned this into the world's headquarters for the Greek fertility god, Pan. Pan is the same deal. He's a fertility god. He comes up out of the underworld and he unites sexually with his goddesses. And then that brings the rains and that brings prosperity and fertility to the ground and the animals and the people. And then Pan returns to the underworld for the dry season. And again, if the people worship him correctly, if they serve him properly, please come back, you know, and he'll come back and we'll have fertility and we'll have rains. And the cycle starts all over again. Now, this cave is the door to the underworld. This is where they worship Pan. Go back a, well, one more there, Trina. Yeah, uh, back. There we go. This cave. This is where all that happens, where they worshiped Baal and Asherah, where they worshiped Pan. And they named the town Panius. Panius means for Pan. And this was 300 years before Jesus. Now, in 23 BC, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, assigned this whole region to Herod the Great. This is the same Herod who was in charge when Jesus was born. This is the same Herod who ordered all the baby boys murdered in Bethlehem. And he knew this is where the people had worshipped Baal for centuries. He knew this is where they are currently worshipping the god Pan. And so he knew this place had major religious significance. And so he built a huge marble temple right here to Caesar Augustus. And you can see the remains to this day. It was a very impressive temple right at the mouth of that cave. And, and this was the first ever temple built for the worship of a Roman emperor. Now, later on, most of the Roman emperors would declare themselves God and Lord, and they would demand to be worshipped like a god. And all of that started right here at this cave in Panius. And when Herod died, he turned this region over to one of his three sons, Philip the Tetrarch. Philip was 16 when he took over here, and he reigned this area for 37 years, and he made Panius his capital. Philip turned this into a fairly large city. There's a huge palace and administrative buildings just to the southeast of this cave. There were 20,000 people living in Panius at this time, and they're all pagan Gentiles. They're all Syrian and Greek non-Jews. And Philip renamed this city Caesarea in honor of the emperor, Caesar Augustus. He's kind of sucking up. That's how that works. Caesarea. And then somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, uh, Philip, your dad already built the Caesarea up on the sea. And so he said, okay, we'll call this Philip's Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi. And this is all there in Jesus' day. The water from the underworld runs out of the cave, out of the gates of Hades, under this temple to Augustus, and you've got the open-air shrine to Pan, 
You've got this big statue of Pan, which is in this really large niche that's cut into the rock. And then you've got all these other smaller niches. You can see them carved right into the rock, 11 of them total, where they placed statues of Pan's nymphs and these other goddesses that were also worshipped. And they were very erotic, pornographic types of images that they, again, also worshipped. And then you've got the shrine of the sacred goats, which is also where the goats would perform during the worship ceremonies. Now, this is what it looked like in Jesus' day. And it had been here for decades. Some of it had been here for centuries. It probably looked like this. Baal and Asherah were worshipped here. Zeus was worshipped here. Pan was worshipped here. Caesar Augustus was worshipped here. At the time, this was called the Rock of the Gods because of all the pagan gods and pagan temples that were carved into the side of this massive cliff. Jerry Jones built his temple here. <laughs> just kidding. But this is just 28 miles away from Capernaum. It's hard to believe that all of that was this close to where Jesus lived and ministered. And I've got to tell you how they worshiped here. And I'm going to have to be blunt because I don't, if you don't get this picture, you're not going to fully understand the significance of what happened here. It's very pagan and it's very disgusting. This partnering of Pan and the nymphs was symbolized by the priest and the priestesses by uniting sexually on the platform, on the stage in front of the worshipers. And during mating season, they would also bring out the goats. And these goats in heat would then mate on the stage. That was the sacrament of the worship. That was the climax. And then came the pandemonium. This is where that word comes from. It comes from this cave, from this site, from this scene, pandemonium. You know that word. It means wild disorder. It means chaos. It means confusion and, and noise. The word panic means literally of pan. That's a sudden, unreasoning hysteria, and often it spreads quickly, right? Panic. That word comes from this place. Pander is another word that derives from what was going on here. A panderer, you know, a panderer is a person who supplies the means to satisfy another person's sexual desires or someone who caters to somebody else's basic lust or vices, you know, like a pimp or a drug dealer, to pander. That comes from this. The words panhandle and pancreatic and pantry have nothing to do with this, okay? But, <laughs> but a lot of our words for, for seedy or prurient or out of control evil, a lot of our words for those things do come from this scene. And so the crowd of worshipers, some scholars believe up to 50 or 60,000 of them at a time, they would be worked up into a sexual frenzy. And then the climax of the worship would be everybody worshiping, coupling up sexually. And there was loud music and there was shouting and chanting and there were torches and bonfires and it was heterosexual and it was homosexual and it was bestiality and it was sick. And it happened regularly here at this cave, this rock. This was the world center for pagan worship, the worship of idols and the worship of animals and the worship of kings, obscene rituals, deviant festivals, 
perverted celebrations. And a good, God-fearing Jew would never be caught dead in an unclean, pagan, sinful city like this. So what do you think happened one morning when Jesus got up and he said to his disciples, let's go. Yala in Hebrew, right? Let's go. And they started walking north. And they got closer and closer to this. What do you think they thought? These teenage boys, if they were, as they got closer to this, my grandmother said she'd kill me if I ever came close to this place. Dad said if I ever got within 10 miles of this city, he'd disown me. Why is he taking us here? Jesus, where are we going? What are we doing? How close did they get? Did they get this close? Did they get this close? Or did they get this close? You decide. Listen to the scriptures. Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, why did Peter say living God? That's a very un-Jewish thing to say. We know God's the living God. Why didn't Peter just say, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of God? Most scholars believe they were close enough to see what was here. And the contrast was so obvious. Jesus, we shouldn't even be looking at this stuff. It is sick, it's disgusting, it's sinful, and it's wrong. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God, not this garbage. You have nothing in common with these superstitions and the evil figures and the statues carved into this rock. Maybe. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by humans, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And upon this rock... I will build my church. All right, Jesus, which rock? Now, Jesus is using a play on words here. We know this, right? In the Greek, Matthew uses the word petros for Peter. Petros means little stone, little rock. Simon, you are petros. You are Peter. You're a little rock. But upon this rock... And the word there is Petra. That means huge rock, big rock, massive rock, right? On this rock, I will build my church. What is Jesus saying? Which rock is he talking about? See, the Catholic tradition is that the rock Jesus is talking about is Peter. Peter, it's you. You're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. And then us Protestants, you know, we say, no, 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 it's not Peter, it's Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the genuine capstone upon which his church is built. 
And then the reformers, years later, and I think maybe some of us are also in this category, we believe, like, like Calvin and Luther, no, 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 it's the confession that Peter makes. That's what Jesus is talking about, the faith and the confidence to declare that Jesus is the Christ. That's where the church is built. What did Jesus mean? Which rock is he talking about? Upon this rock, I will build my church. I think it's this rock. This rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. My mission. Our mission, Jesus says, is to leave our close-knit godly communities and build my church, my community of faith, the eternal kingdom of God on top of this, in place of this. My church will prevail and triumph over this. My church, Jesus says, will fix this. This, these people down there in the mud with the goats, man, they're all looking for something. They are searching. They're, they're dying for the truth. And Jesus says, my church is the answer. My church is what they need. I'll build my church on this rock. And if you think that's a stretch, listen to Scripture. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Somehow we've developed this idea that Jesus' church is about forming close little safe communities where we protect our innocence and we protect ourselves from the ugliness of the devil and the horrible ways he works in this world. And we hide ourselves in our churches until the second coming or until we die, whichever comes first. And our Lord says, no, I will build my church right here in the middle of the sin and the sickness and the evil and the desperation. My church attacks this and my church destroys it you ever thought about this what are gates for are gates offensive or are they defensive think about this you you build a city and you put these huge 25 foot thick casemate walls around the city how are the people going to get it in, in and out they've got to go in and out through the gates you got to put gates in a wall in order for people to, to come and go and that's the weak spot in your defense right if you're going to attack a city and try to destroy it you don't do that by attacking that 25 foot 15 high wall you do it by attacking the gates you storm the gates and then you get inside and you wreak havoc and and, and I'm not sure we we think about that enough right that's where you de you defeat the enemy at the gates and so if the gates of Hades won't stand who's attacking whom here Christ has established his church Jesus has established his followers, his disciples, his body to take on Satan himself. And so we don't build a fort to keep Satan out. That, that, that's backwards. Jesus says he's going to build his, his church on this rock and the gates of Hades, hell, evil, sin, death, Everything that distorts God's creation, everything that separates the children from the Father, none of that is going to stop it. By his church, through his church, through us, Jesus Christ storms the gates of Hades and he wins. Big time. Jesus is making a bold, radical, dramatic, world-changing overthrow statement here. 
Peter makes the inspired confession that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the son of God. But then Jesus tells him what that means. It means Jesus is Lord. Not Baal, not Caesar, not Pan, not Zeus, not the Roman Empire, not any of the things that are, that are worshipped here in this place. Jesus is Lord. And his church will overthrow and supersede all worldly authorities and powers. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us that Jesus is the one sent by God to destroy all dominion, authority, and power, even death. He says death is going to be swallowed up in his victory. Why? Because he has put everything under his feet. Why? So that God may be all in all. Philippians 3 says the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to bring everything under his control. 1 Corinthians 4 says the kingdom of God ain't about power, or it's not about talk, it's about power. Jesus showed it to his followers this day. He walked them 28 miles from their home, 120 miles from Jerusalem, as far away from the safety of the holy city, as far away from the sanctuary of the holy temple you can go and still be in the land of Israel to show them the lies and the ugliness and the sin and the death of Satan and his world. He walked them right into the heart of it to say, through me, through my church, through you, God destroys all of this. This huge rock plateau, this, this massive Petra, right, where the, where the political authorities have established their worldly thrones, where the most audacious among them have even declared themselves to be gods. You're one man, Peter, Petros, you're, you're one man. You're not much. And this Petra, this, this gigantic and imposing rock, this, this massive stone, it's threatening and it's scary. But I'm going to build my church on this Petra and I will reign, Jesus says, with all power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever. Amen. Listen, church, church of Jesus Christ, listen to me. We did not establish this. Jesus did. We did not build the church. Our Lord Jesus did it. And his church is not weak. His church is not fragile. It's not frail. And it's certainly not irrelevant or insignificant. Jesus' church is an extension of his power. His power. The power of the church doesn't come from us. We don't have to generate it. We don't have to produce it. The power belongs to the Messiah. And he's given it to us. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 16. I pray, this is what we read earlier. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God now to him 
who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord has established his church in Midland. We didn't start this. Willie Godot didn't start this. Nobody I've ever seen face-to-face started this church. This belongs to Christ. Amen? And he infused it with his power. Not because we've got such great leadership. Not because we've got really good timing. Not because any of us are righteous or good by any stretch of the imagination. This is about the power of God in Christ. Upon this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Hear me. God's purposes for this world have already been established in Jesus Christ. It's already finished. You follow me? It's already done. What remains is just the unfolding the working out of what we know has already happened. And our Lord is using his church to do it. We're so silly. We think church is a place that puts on services. It's not. This church, the Golf Course Road Church in Midland, Texas, is established by Christ for his purposes, and it is infused with his power. We live and we act in the almighty power of Jesus Christ. And we need to acknowledge that power, brothers and sisters. We need to be aware of that power. We need to feel that power. We need to see Golf Course Road as a place and a people where the glory of our Lord beams out to the whole city and throughout the entire world so that all people will know that our God is sovereign, our Jesus is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is with us, and the powers of sin and death are in big trouble. Amen? Big trouble. Stand with me, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays that we would know the incomparably great power of Jesus Christ that belongs to us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. That same victorious power that brought Jesus out of the grave, that same eternal power that is stronger than sin and death, that same divine power, church, it is ours. It belongs to us. And so be strong in the mighty power of our God. God chose the most pagan, sinful, godless, anti-Christ place they knew. He chose that place. To reveal to them that Jesus is Christ. Peter and the apostles knew it and they confessed it. And in the shadow of that imposing, threatening, evil rock, they believed it. Jesus is Lord. He is the one sent by God to destroy sin and death and anything that might separate you from him and from his people. 
I would invite you today to allow God through Christ to unfold in your life what he's already done, what he's already established, where things are already headed, the things that trouble you, the things that terrorize you, your fears, your doubts, all of that is under his feet. It will not stand against the grace and the power of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God.